Welcome to the podcast. Today we will be discussing the insanity defense. Let's get legal. Okay, today we will be starting a new subsection of the criminal process cases, which is criminal responsibility. There will be two episodes on this subsection, the insanity defense, which we will talk about today, and diminished capacity. All right, our first uh, case that we would talk about today is McNaughton's case. We're going way back to 19th century England for this one. In January of 1843, Daniel McNaughton was seen walking suspiciously around Whitehall in London. Edward Drummond, the Prime Minister's private secretary, was walking toward da uh, Downing Street when Mr. McNaughton walked up behind him and shot him in the back at point-blank range. It is thought that McNaughton mistook Mr. Drummond for the Prime Minister and shot him by mistake, although McNaughton never admitted to this. Mr. Drummond had the ball removed from his back, but eventually died five days later. There is some controversy over whether Mr. Drummond died due to the actual gunshot or due to the practices of bleeding and leeching in the day. Either way, Mr. Drummond was deceased and McNaughton was charged with his murder. McNaughton appeared at the magistrate's court the next day and stated that personal persecution from the Tories, which was a political party in the day, had driven him to the assassination. McNaughton had complained of persecution by the Tories to his friends and family for some time prior to the murder, but no one took him seriously and wrote him off as deluded. He stated, The Tories in my native city have compelled me to do this. They follow, persecute me wherever I go, and have entirely destroyed my peace of mind. It can be proved by evidence. That is all I have to say. McNaughton was brought to trial and pled not guilty. Both the prosecution and defense acknowledged McNaughton's mental illness, but the prosecution argued that he was able to distinguish right from wrong and conscious at the time of the crime, regardless of his obvious persecutory delusions. The panel of judges instructed the jury on how to weigh the evidence in the case in regard to his insanity defense, and these stands uh, became known as the McNaughton Rules and are widely still used today. They stated, quote, every man is to be presumed to be sane and that to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proven that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as to not know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what he was doing was wrong. After evidence of his mental illness was presented, the jury found McNaughton not guilty by reason of insanity. Here is a summary of the key points of the ruling. According to the standard put forth by the judge to the jury, in order to qualify for not guilty by reason of insanity, the defendant's defect of reason from disease of the mind must have been such that they did not know the nature and quality of the act or the wrongfulness of the act. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember that the McNaughton rules revolve around the word not. I remember that in order to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, someone must not have known the nature and quality of the act or not 
have known the wrongfulness of the act due to their mental illness. Again, I remember that the McNaughton rules revolve around the word not. I remember that in order to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, someone must not have the nature and quality of the act known or not have known the wrongfulness of the act due to their mental illness. Our next case is Durham v. U.S. In the early 1950s, Monty Durham was tried for and convicted of burglary. He had a long-standing history of mental illness and was hospitalized multiple times at St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital in Washington, D.C. Mr. Durham appealed, and his case was heard by the U.S. Court of Appeals, District of Columbia Circuit. The Court of Appeals reversed the decision, criticizing the McNaughton Rules standard of a defendant knowing right versus wrong, and set a new criteria by which someone can or cannot be held criminally responsible for their actions. The judge stated, quote, It is simply that an accused is not criminally responsible if his unlawful act was the product of mental disease or mental defect. We use disease in the sense of a condition which is considered capable of either improving or deteriorating and which may be either congenital or the result of injury or the residual effect of a physical or mental disease. This standard became known as the Durham Rules. The Durham Rules were adopted thereafter by most states and federal courts. It has since been widely criticized for being far too broad and does not define clearly enough product, mental disease, or medical or mental defect. It has been since rejected by most territories other than the state of New Hampshire since the 1970s after the introduction of the Moral Penal Code. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. This ruling replaced the previously used McNaughton rule, which focused on the defendant's knowledge of right and wrong, and instead focused on if the, quote, unlawful act was the product of men mental disease or mental defect, unquote. This rule was criticized for being vague and difficult to apply in practice. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember ham, Durham, Durham, ham, is a common product at a grocery store. Durham v. U.S. said that a defendant is not criminally responsible for their actions if the unlawful act was a product of, the, of mental disease or mental defect. Again, I remember ham, Durham, is a common product at a grocery store. Durham v. U.S. said a defendant is not criminally responsible for their actions if the unlawful act was a product of mental disease or mental defect. Our next case is Washington v. U.S. In Washington v. United States, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit ruled on the limitations of expert testimony in a criminal trial where insanity is the defense. The court held that psychiatrists cannot testify as to whether the alleged criminal act was the product of mental illness or not. The case, revolved, or the case involved a criminal defendant, Thomas Washington, who was convicted of rape, robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. His primary defense was insanity. The issue at hand was the extent to which psychiatrists could testify about the defendant's mental state. The court held that psychiatrists cannot testify as to whether the criminal act was the product of mental illness. 
This is because the concept of product involves a legal determination that is ultimately reserved for the jury. The court reasoned that allowing psychiatrists to testify on the product question would usurp the jury's role in deciding the ultimate issue of guilt. It also expressed concern that such testimony could confuse the jury and lead them to abdicate their responsibility to weigh the evidence and apply the law. This ruling modified the application of the Durham Rule, which previously allowed psychiatrists to testify in terms of product and causation. It established stricter limits on expert testimony in insanity defense cases and shifted the focus toward factual descriptions of the defendant's mental state rather than legal conclusions about the relationship between the mental illness and the crime. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Psychiatrists cannot testify as to whether the alleged criminal act was the product of mental illness. This was because the court determined that this question was ultimately for the jury to decide, not expert witnesses. And two, expert witnesses can describe the defendant's mental condition and symptoms, but they should avoid drawing conclusions about the relationship between those symptoms and the criminal act. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember this ruling washes Washington, us, U.S., as psychiatrists of the responsibility of testifying as to whether the alleged criminal act was the product of mental illness. Again, I remember this ruling washes us as psychiatrists, Washington, U.S., of the responsibility of testifying as to whether the alleged criminal act was the product of mental illness and places that burden on the jury. Our next case is Frendak v. U.S. In 1974, Paula Frendak was accused of illegally carrying a firearm and shooting a co-worker to death. After the alleged actions, Ms. Frendak fled the country but was eventually extradited back to the United States to stand trial. She had a long-standing history of mental illness, including reports of hallucinations and delusions. Prior to her trial, she was evaluated by multiple psychiatrists who opined that she was competent to stand trial, but most likely insane at the time of the alleged act. Ms. Frendak, however, refused the insanity defense, stating that being remanded to a hospital would be worse than any prison. Despite her objections, the court stated that she was not allowed to reject the insanity defense and was forced to plead insanity. Ms. Frendak appealed to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, who reversed the decision. The court stated that the judge may not impose the insanity defense upon an unwilling defendant if an intelligent defendant voluntarily wishes to forego the defense. They stated that, quote, respect for a defendant's freedom as a person mandates that he or she be permitted to make fundamental decisions about the course of the proceedings. The court noted multiple reasons for why a defendant may prefer to reject the insanity defense, including an insanity acquittal may increase the period of confinement over a prison sentence, better treatment may be received in a prison than a mental hospital, the defendant may want to avoid the stigma associated with a mental disorder, commitment may result in the loss of other rights such as a driver's license, and the defendant may regard the crime as a political or religious act. The court therefore limited any further competence inquiry into an evaluation of the defendant's specific competency to waive the insanity defense.
Here is a summary of the key points of the ruling. The court recognized that defendants may have personal reasons for rejecting the insanity defense, even if they seem illogical. Forcing an unwanted defense could violate a defendant's right to due process and a fair trial. And an evaluation of the, of the defendant's specific competency to waive the insanity defense may be required in certain circumstances. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember that the judge may think they are acting as a friend, friend act, by forcing someone to plead insanity, but there are many reasons a person may prefer to do otherwise. Again, I remember the judge may think that they are acting as a friend, friend act, by forcing someone to plead insanity and go to a hospital, but there are many reasons that a person may prefer to do otherwise. Our next case is Jones v. U.S., in 1975, Michael Jones was accused of attempting to steal a jacket from a Washington, D.C. department store and was charged with petite larceny, a misdemeanor which held a maximum penalty of one-year imprisonment. A psychiatric evaluation found that Mr. Jones suffered from paranoid schizophrenia but was competent to stand trial. Mr. Jones pled not guilty by reason of insanity, which was accepted by the court and was automatically committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Mr. Jones remained in the hospital for over a year after multiple requests for his release. Staff psychologist at St. Mary's stated that Mr. Jones continued to actively suffer from paranoid schizophrenia and therefore remained a danger to himself and others, necess uh, necessitating his continued hospitalization. Mr. Jones and his defense argued that he had been hospitalized for longer than the period he would have spent in prison if he had been convicted and should be released. The case was appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals, who upheld the lower court's decision of continued hospitalization. The, court, the case was then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had to address multiple issues in this case. They ruled that there was a constitutional basis for the automatic commitment of insanity acquitties. They stated that the verdict established that he committed the crime and that he did so because he was mentally ill by a preponderance of evidence and that, quote, Congress has determined that a criminal defendant found not guilty by reason of insanity in the District of Columbia should be committed indefinitely to a mental institution for treatment and the protection of society, unquote. They also had to rule on the maximum sentence issue in regards to commitment after a not guilty by reason of insanity plea. They ruled that commitment to a hospital serves a different purpose than incarceration and that there is not a correlation between the severity of the offense and the length of time necessary for recovery. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, the court ruled that practices of automatically committing insanity acquitties was permissible according to the Constitution. And number two, commitment to a hospital serves a different purpose than incarceration and that there is not a correlation between the severity of the offense and the length of time necessary for recovery. Now how to remember the ruling. I'm not going to lie, this is a tough one. Um, I have to remember the name of the defendant, Michael Jones, or MJ. I remember M for Michael and medical commitment. A lot of M's in commitment. I also remember J for Jones and jail. 
it reminds me that the medical commitment and jail don't serve the same purpose and thus don't follow the same timeline. Again, I remember the name of the defendant, Michael Jones or MJ. I remember the M for Michael and medical commitment. I remember the J for Jones and jail. And it reminds me that medical commitment and jail don't serve the same purpose and thus don't follow the same timeline. Our next case is Fucha v. Louisiana. Terry Fucha was charged with burglary and illegal discharge of a firearm after attempting to burglarize a home and, after getting caught, fired a gun in the direction of police as he fled. He was initially found incompetent but later was restored to competency and found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was committed to East Feliciana State Hospital. According to Louisiana statutes, after a hospital committee recommends an acquittee to be released, a trial court hearing is held to determine whether the acquittee is a danger to himself or others. The statute allows the acquittee to be returned to the hospital if he was determined to be still dangerous. At his hearing, a psychiatrist testified that Mr. Fucha was not mentally ill, but still exhibited symptoms consistent with antisocial personality disorder and that he might pose a danger if released. The court stated that the burden of proof rested on Fucha to prove that he was not a danger to himself or others, and because this was not proven due to his behavior while hospitalized, which included him getting in multiple fights, he was sent back to the hospital. Mr. Fucha appealed this finding. The Louisiana State Court of Appeals denied his appeal, which the Louisiana Supreme Court affirmed. The case was then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that the state statute violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. They stated that an acquittee cannot be held as a mental patient without some medical justification for doing so. They stated that formerly insane acquittees must remain both ill and dangerous to continue to be involuntarily committed. They stated that if the defendant no longer suffers from a mental illness, then there's no justification to detain him. They also placed the onus of proving dangerousness on the state, as opposed to requiring an acquittee to prove his non-dangerousness. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. A state may confine an insane acquittee only if the state can prove by clear and convincing evidence that the individual remains mentally ill and dangerous. And an individual who has recovered from mental illness and is not dangerous cannot be confined simply because they were once found not guilty by reason of insanity. Now how to remember the ruling. Fucha reminds me of Fauci, which was the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And then Louisiana reminds me of danger. I apologize to everyone from Louisiana, but it reminds me of this because of all the hurricanes there, such as Hurricane Katrina. So I remember Fucha, Fauci, illness, versus Louisiana, dangerous, rules that an insanity equity must be both ill and dangerous to remain hospitalized. Again, I remember Fucha, Fauci, illness, versus Louisiana, dangerous, rules that an insanity acquittee must be both ill and dangerous to remain hospitalized. We will finish off with Clark v. Arizona. 
Eric Clark was a 17-year-old living in Arizona and suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Mr. Clark believed that his town in Arizona had been taken over by aliens who were posing as government employees. He believed that they were trying to hurt and kill him and that the only way to stop them was through death. One night, Mr. Clark was driving around with his music blasting and was pulled over by police. Mr. Clark shot and killed the police officer at the traffic stop, believing that he was an alien. Mr. Clark was brought to trial. At the time, Arizona had a law which limited the use of expert evidence about a defendant's mental state to the issue of insanity. This meant that defendants in Arizona could not use expert testimony to show that their mental illness, while not rising to the level of legal insanity, affected their ability to form the specific intent required for certain crimes. Mr. Clark argued that he was not guilty of intent to kill a police officer and that he was also legally insane. The judge, in accordance with the Arizona state law, denied Mr. Clark's attempt to plead lack of intent and restricted his mental illness defense to legal insanity. Arizona state law restricted the insanity defense to knowledge of wrongfulness and did not consider intent in an insanity plea. The defendant was found to know right from wrong, and so he could not qualify under Arizona's insanity defense. Mr. Clark was found guilty for the crime. Mr. Clark argued that, his, that this Arizona state law was un, unconstitutional because it limited the previously adopted McNaughton standard to only the knowledge of right and wrong and leaving out the understanding of the nature and quality of the act. The trial court denied Mr. Clark's request to vacate. The Arizona Court of Appeals and Arizona Supreme Court agreed with the decision. The case was then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court found that the decisions of the lower courts were constitutionally sound and that there was no specific definition of legal insanity. It found that many states differ on their definition of insanity, and some states have eliminated the insanity defense altogether. They ruled that Arizona's statute to limit evidence of mental illness at the time of a crime from being used as a defense and restricting the insanity definition to appreciation of wrongfulness only to be constitutional. The dissenting opinion argued that this view violated due process by preventing defendants from presenting relevant evidence about their mental state at the time of their offense. Here is a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, the court upheld Arizona's law restricting the use of mental health evidence to the narrow question of whether the defendant lacked the capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions and that this did not violate the defendant's due process rights. And also the court acknowledged that this ruling could limit some defendant's ability to present a complete defense, but that individual states may have different rules and regulations regarding the use of mental health evidence in criminal trials. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember the, the abbreviation for the state of Arizona is AZ. A to Z represents you know, everything. So I remember A to Z represents all of the states of the country. And I remember that Clark v. Arizona allowed for each state uh, throughout the entire country to have differing rules and regulations regarding the insanity defense. Again, I remember the abbreviation for the state of Arizona is AZ. 
and that A to Z represents all of the states of the country. And I remember that Clark v. Arizona allowed for all of the states in the country to have differing rules and regulations regarding the insanity defense. All right, we talked about a lot of cases today. Let's just go over quickly the mnemonics. Our first case was the McNaughton's case. Uh, I remember that the McNaughton rules revolve around the word not. Remember that in order to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, someone must not have known the nature and quality of the act or not have known the wrongfulness of the act due to their mental illness. Then we talked about Durham v. U.S. I remember ham in Durham or Durham is a common product at a grocery store. And then Durham v. U.S. said a defendant is not criminally responsible for their actions if the unlawful act was a product of uh, mental disease or defect. Uh, the next case we talked about is Washington v. U.S. And uh, I remember uh, the, this ruling washes us, washes Washington, us, U.S., washes us as psychiatrists of the responsibility of testifying as to whether the alleged criminal act was a product of mental illness and kind of puts that burden of determining that on the jury itself. Uh, our next case was Friendac v. U.S. I remember that the judge may think they are acting as a friend, Friendac, act, friend, Friendac, uh, by forcing someone to plead insanity and go to the hospital instead of jail, uh, but there are many reasons that a person may prefer to do otherwise and go to jail. Uh, next, I remember Jones v. U.S. Uh, I remember that ruling by um, the name of the defendant. Remember, this is a tough one because Jones and U.S. are just, you know, there's not a lot, uh, you know, to stick out and remember there. But I remember the name of the defendant, Michael Jones, MJ. I remember M for Michael and medical commitment. A lot of M's in there. And I remember J for Jones in jail. And it reminds me that this, you know, ruling, Jones v. U.S., uh, ruled that medical uh, commitment and jail did not serve the same purpose and thus did not follow the same timeline. Again, uh, confusing one, I remember Michael Jones, who is the defendant here, M for Michael and medical commitment, J for Jones and jail, reminds me that medical commitment and jail are different um, and they don't serve the or follow the same timeline uh, often. <clears throat> Our next case was Fauci, or excuse me, Fucha v. Louisiana. The way that I remember that one is Fucha reminds me of Fauci, um, who was the former director of the NIA uh, ID. And um, he dealt with a lot of infectious disease. So that reminds me of illness or ill. And then Louisiana reminds me of danger because of all the hurricanes there, like Hurricane Katrina. So I remember Fucha, Fauci illness versus Louisiana, dangerous, rules that an insanity acquittee must be both ill and dangerous to be remained hospitalized. Uh, again, I remember Fucha, Fauci, Fauci illness, uh, and then Louisiana, dangerous. Um, so uh, Fucha v. Louisiana, illness, dangerous, rules that an insanity acquittee must be both ill and dangerous to be remained hospitalized. And then finally, Clark v. Arizona. I remember the abbreviation for the state of Arizona is AZ, and that A to Z kind of represents all of the states of the country, 
And I remember how this ruling, Clark v. Arizona, allowed for each state to have um, differing rules and regulations regarding the insanity defense. All right, that's a wrap on episode six on the insanity defense. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review and be sure to subscribe to be notified the next time an episode is released. Cheers. Cheers.